Welcome to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. MotorWeek is made possible by Cars.com. Here's your MotorWeek podcast host, John Davis. Hello and welcome everyone to our MotorWeek podcast number 22. And we have a very, very special guest joining us by phone today to give us his impressions on some of the uh, most recent cars uh, that we've uh, tested collectively. Joining us from Chicago is Cars.com Editor-in-Chief Patrick Olson. Patrick? Hey, John. How are you? Great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me here. My pleasure. And our pleasure. In the studio with me today is also our road test producer, Brian Robinson. Thanks for having me, John. <laughs> Anytime, Brian. And our head writer, Shamit Choksi. Hey, John. How are you? Good day, everybody. And remember, at the end of the podcast today, we will also have our lightning round, and we'll also look at our MotorWeek mailbag. But first, uh, it's hard to believe we're gearing up for MotorWeek's 29th season. And we're kicking it off with uh, something new. Um, MotorWeek has teamed up with Cars.com for a very special review that we're calling our Power and Economy Drive. And what we set out to do is take six high-mileage cars and say, okay, while they often get advertised as great for commuting or great for one purpose for another, for a lot of folks, these vehicles will be their only car. So how do they do an all-around performance? What happens when you take them to extreme landscape? And that's exactly what we did. We took the six cars up to the mountains of western Maryland near Cumberland, Maryland, and the Rocky Gap uh, State Park area, where it's quite uh, challenging as far as the elevation and the types of roads. And we drove them around for um, almost three days, about 500 collective miles, and uh, recorded the mileage at uh, various steps along the way, but more importantly, recorded our impressions. The six cars that we did include, fairly obviously, the Toyota Prius, uh, also uh, the Honda Insight Hybrid. Uh, our third hybrid was the Ford Fusion Hybrid. We have two diesels on the trip, Volkswagen Jetta TDI, which we picked as our car of the year. Uh, also, the Audi A3 TDI, which will be on sale early next year in the U.S. And rounding out our list, the Smart 4.2, a car that everyone has talked about but mostly think is only suitable for the city. Uh, after we get done talking about that, we'll also talk about the 2010 Ford Taurus. But let's go back to the power and economy drive. Okay, I'm going to take these down one by one, and let's all give our general opinions of, of what it was like to drive these cars uh, on this trip since we all drove them. First, kind of the king of the hill these days, I guess, as far as hybrids, the Toyota Prius. Comments? Patrick, why don't you start? Sure. You know, I, I like the Prius in terms of the gas mileage it gets, and for 2010, it's been redesigned, so it's the third generation. And the interior has really, really been improved, I think. Now, that being said, I still have some questions and problems with it. The brake feel is still a little brick-like for me, and at high speeds, like on the interstate on the way out to the gap, the engine noise is a little loud for my taste. But that being said, I think it's still a step forward for Toyota. I mean, it, I think we all were impressed with its mileage. It, you know, by, at the end of this trip, it was still over 49 miles per gallon. But the point was, as you just made it, it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't by a long shot, the most comfortable car on the cruise. No, I agree. I thought the seats were, were passable, but, you know, there were some other ones that we drove that I, uh, I enjoyed riding in for long stretches more. Shamit? Um, you know, the Toyota Prius is, is the king as far as I'm concerned. Um, it, I mean, in the third generation iteration, it to me, it looks like they're really trying to be a premium vehicle. Um, I don't know if that's their place to do that. Um, uh, 
What did you think about driving it, though, up and down the terrain as far as did it disappoint you as far as power or, you know, just give me an idea about uh, I thought how, it was, what it was it like to drive? I thought it was extremely smooth. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, you guys seem a little bit um, disappointed by it. I didn't feel that way. I thought it was comfortable. I, I think it's uh, one of these to each his own situations. I mean, we drove it all the way out to Western Maryland, and I was comfortable in it all the way through and through. Brian? You can't argue with the few mileage numbers. They're certainly the king with that. But uh, if you like to enjoy what you're driving, it's certainly not the choice for you. It's kind of like driving in a uh, appliance around. You really get no enjoyment out of it whatsoever. Yeah, it was kind of like blah. It certainly was. There was no sporting factor. Yeah. Uh, number two, a car that has been brought out and, and somewhat controversial, the Honda Insight, is a challenger to uh, the Prius. Um, Patrick, what were your thoughts on the Insight? Well, I think it's interesting you should meet, mention that Toyota likes to position the Prius or maybe positioning the Prius as premium. Because I think Honda's taking the absolute opposite approach with the Insight. They're saying, we'll get you into a hybrid uh, for a lot less money. Well, you know, at least a few grand less. And in some ways, I enjoyed the drive experience in the Insight better. I thought it was peppier off the start, uh, had a little more energy. It didn't get anywhere near as good a mileage as the Prius uh, when I drove it. Um, and it's it's got some issues of its own. But for a less expensive hybrid, you know, and as a as a sort of rebirth of that car, I was pretty impressed with it. The Insight had more of the sporting character that we see, or I should see at least uh, say at least entertaining character that we see in most Honda cars. Yeah, definitely yeah. entertaining to drive. It felt a little not as solid, not as well built as the Prius. Uh, as far as styling, it's it's almost like a three quarter scale Prius. We um, yeah, they went for that that uh, futuristic look, so people would know you were driving uh, a hybrid. We um, when we earlier tested uh, a Honda Inside and Toyota Prius side by side, we got just slightly better mileage for the Prius. But on this trip, uh, the Honda was about forty, and the uh, Prius was about forty nine. So there was a big difference. Yeah. Shamit, anything? Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's more sporting character, more fun to drive. It makes more sense to me as a hybrid. It's more affordable, and I think that's what that's what my criticism about Prius is. It's getting away from being affordable. Yeah, the mileage difference. Uh, all that we drove on a lot of big hills, and yeah, the insight was really working to get. Yeah, get smaller motor, speed. and it really worked harder. The car that I think we talked most about out there is <laughs> is enjoying to drive as far as a hybrid a Ford Fusion hybrid, a car that really, uh, uh, to me. It's a real car. It's not just a hybrid. It's an all-around car. Patrick, uh, thoughts on the Fusion? I, I really like the Fusion Hybrid. I was very impressed with it. I thought, uh, in many ways, the hybrids we drove is the most comfortable one I drove. Um, you know, for Ford, it's uh, there are still a few things they need to work on. I think the, again, the engine noise was a little loud, but man, that car felt planted when we went up and over hills and around curves. I didn't for a second feel like you know I got to slow this thing down or really ease off because I don't know how it's going to handle because it did really well on that. Brian? Yeah, I was very impressed with the Fusion Hybrid. Uh, very comfortable to drive and uh, over 600-mile range, which I love. And like I say, it's comfortable. You could have no problem uh, running out the tank all day on that thing. I mean, it's a real car. It did 30, uh, 32 uh, miles per gallon. It's actually rated higher than the uh, Camry Hybrid. Uh, I just thought it was a no-compromise hybrid. I think style-wise also, it's it's a great hybrid that doesn't scream hybrid. I mean, you But is that good? I think it's great. Yeah. I, that's the yeah. one I would go with because I'm not out there to, to you know, show everybody that I'm driving a hybrid, it's just it's about me and the car. Good for me. I'm not sure it's good for Ford, though. You know, 
people seem to want to advertise. They want an eco-freak mobile. Say, hey, look at me. Look what I'm doing for the for the environment. The rest of you are not as good as me. Um, exactly. And I wonder if Ford isn't going to maybe lose out a little bit because, you know, you look at what GM does with hybrids, and holy cow, they've got, you know, 20-inch tall letters on the, on the <laughs> Tahoe hybrid that says, I'm a hybrid, you know. So and know and generally speaking, them. it hasn't worked. Right. Yeah. Um, transitioning, we have two diesels on the trip. Everybody in Europe says, ah, you don't need hybrids. You can get by with a diesel. They give comparable mileage. Very impressive vehicles. Uh, let's take the Volkswagen Jetta TDI, but I should preface it and say that it did. they did very, very well, but they didn't do as well as either the Honda Insight or the Toyota Prius. But having said that, uh, a lot of other benefits to the Jetta TDI, right? Uh, let's start again with Patrick. I, I, the, for me, the Jetta TDI was wow. I mean, I, I loved driving that car. It had a great uh, transmission. It was a stick shift, and it was just a blast to drive. And the the great mileage is just a bonus. I mean, everything else about that car was fun and useful, and I could absolutely see myself in it as a daily driver. Yeah, that was a manual transmission uh, car, but to you, that was a true sports sedan, right? Oh, absolutely. It didn't matter absolutely. whether it was diesel or whatever. No, right. It could have been gerbils under the hood. I was just pretty happy with it. <laughs> Brian. Yeah, definitely uh, my pick of, of the overall winner for that. Is, as Patrick mentioned, fun to drive. And, again, with the hills, you know, the, some of the hybrids were really laboring going up the hills. When you got the all the torque of the diesel, you know, you don't even have to downshift. Just uh, give it a little more throttle. And scoots right up the hill, keeps the engine from working as hard. I think a better everyday uh, solution. One of the quietest turbo diesels we've also seen. And, you know, at 38 miles per gallon, nothing to sneeze at. Yep. Brian? Brian. I mean, uh, sorry. Well, you can't forget Farfignugan as well. (laughs) Farfignugan. I never, what did it really mean? I never really remember what Farfignugan mean. I guess it didn't matter. It's It's very esoteric. want people to know it, you know? Yeah. Shamit, any uh, comment? You know, I don't even know why I'm sitting here because these guys are hitting on everything. I'm no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, no well, it just means you have to think harder. Uh, uh, excellent packaging. Looks great. We we made it our car of the year for uh, for those reasons and everything else that, you know, Patrick and Brian are saying. So, you know, it deserves to be on top. Here's the interesting part. That same engine in the Audi A3 <clears throat> TDI uh, got actually a little bit better mileage. And uh, there it had the uh, double-clutch automatic transmission, so you actually didn't lose as much time during shifts. Did, did everybody like driving it as much as the Jetta, or are we just too jaded because we like uh, manuals? Any comments? No, well, I, I think you've, got, you've hit something on the manual thing there because uh, I, I didn't mind driving the A3, but two things. One, I'm a big guy, and it felt kind of tiny to me, and I felt kind of cramped in it. And two, the driving experience was, was good, but it was nothing compared to – you know, shifting up and down, going over hills and around curves, uh, the Jetta was just a lot more fun. Having said that, though, for the average person that maybe either can't drive a manual transmission car or don't doesn't want one, since you can also get this yeah. automatic, uh, an automatic Jetta, do you think it's a reasonable alternative? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the transmission was great, especially with the double clutch. It, you know, it kicked down when it had to. It, it uh, upshifted when it needed to. I never felt like I was lagging at all. So I think that was fine. It, it's just as a personal preference, I preferred the stick. Shamidi, comments oh. about the A3? I'll let yeah, you go before no, Brian. Uh, this was my favorite of the six cars. That we really? Took. Yeah. It was just one thing is, of course, it's efficient and clean. You know what's going on. Mileage-wise, it, it, it did fine. It did 
for eight? What were the uh, final the, Basically, the uh, the A3 got about 38, and actually I misspoke before. The Jetta got about 36. Right, so 38, and it's so much fun to drive. I, I just – this was my, my pick. I mean – there's also something to be said for the ambiance of an Audi. I mean, it's a beautiful car inside. Yeah. The, the you whole, felt like you were in a premium vehicle. Definitely. You felt yeah. European, too. Yeah, you felt European. <laughs> Is that a good thing? It feels more <laughs> premium compared to the Jetta, but also it's a little tighter inside, which, uh, as Patrick mentioned, yeah. it's going to be a little cramped, but it kind of adds to the fun factor. You feel a little sportier. And uh, the thing, I think it was a little sportier to drive, too, as far as uh, staying a little flatter in the corners. And Speaking of tight, and I've saved this one for the last, uh, the uh, Smart 4-2. All right. Be kind. Who wants to go first? Oh, right. I think we should let Shamit go first. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Shamit. Smart 4-2. Well, it's funny that we took this out to the mountains of western Maryland. I I, I agree with you. What you said up front, John, was that it's a, it's a city car. This is the highest mileage non-hybrid car you can buy in America. That's why it's on the trip. Right. Okay? And, and if I lived in Berkeley or some little hamlet out in Europe, I'd love this car. Take it out on Route 70 at 85 miles an hour with a bunch of 18-wheelers, uh, and I am it's, it's super scary. Uh, I will I will give some defense of the car. Yeah. I actually drove it on the interstate more than anybody else, and I actually had a good time with it. I mean, it was foot to the floor and everything it would do to keep up with the traffic on the interstate. Yeah, but, but I'm a fatalist, John. You're, you're very <laughs> And, and it's true. You, <laughs> I've lived longer than you are. You have, I guess. You, when you get by a, a, a semi, you know, and the tires are taller than you are, uh, it is a little scary. But it didn't get blown around in the wind nearly or from the passing vehicle nearly uh, as, as much, much as, as I you, expected. Right. Uh, now, I, I know Patrick's got some strong opinions about the smart. Well, you know, it's funny, John, is one of the things that I, I recognized on this trip was that when we got returning back from Western Maryland, you're like, well, you know, you guys go ahead and I'll catch up to you. And by the time we got <laughs> where we were going, you were ahead of us. So, you know, clearly the smart car is not quite, you know, as much the laggard as everyone says. Right. Um, and on the interstate, I'm with you that it, it felt planted. My only problem with that car is the brakes are like putting a two-by-four against the tire and slowing them down. And to me, that alone, and then the the transmission that lags severely when you're going at slower speeds between gear shifts drive me nuts. Um, they they so haven't they have improved that, though. There's been, I understand they've yeah. done a reprogram, and it's better than the one we tested a year ago. Brian? Yeah, the 4.2 still not quite a real car to me, but uh, it's surprisingly fun to drive. And it's very optical illusion-like. You can't believe there's that much room inside that thing when you see it from the outside but when you're driving it i mean it's very spacious in there. i mean there there we could nitpick it to death for instance the the package shelf on the back has got no lips so if you put anything on it it rolls off onto the floor and all that but i guess i came away with more much more respect for the car than i had going in it's a real car you can use it you know as a uh, an everyday driver or if you have to you know for a longer trip and not feel like you're taking it completely out of its element it's not a nirvana but it's more than a city car I think. it's still got to be a second car though i yeah. don't i don't think that could be your only car that's for sure yeah, and I will say that you know the the cockpit was surprisingly roomy. I mean, it's, it reminds me of the Mini Cooper in that it looks tiny, but once you sit in it, it's pretty comfortable once you get in there. So we'll all be having the full results of our um, uh, 
Power and Economy Drive coming up on Motor Week soon. And also uh, there'll be companion articles written by the staff of Cars.com uh, giving their impressions of the uh, route and um, who they like best. And so uh, it was a very it was lots of fun to do. And, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. Patrick, thank you for your staff uh, joining us. But, oh, it was a lot of fun. But stay on the line now because we're going to transition yep. now to another car, a very, very important car for Ford Motor Company and the U.S. auto industry, and that is the uh, new 2010 Ford Taurus. Brian Robinson, you've had the most experience in the Taurus. Yeah, all new for 2010, as you said. Uh, very impressed overall. It's really good looking. Uh, it draws a crowd everywhere you go, especially the SHO. Uh, they brought that back. Uh, it's still a very big car. It's a full-size car. Not yeah. like the old Taurus was more of a mid-size the, car. I guess the, the original Fusion, Taurus, yeah, I should say, which is the yeah size of the Fusion, is now. But uh, drove it at the track yesterday. Very impressive. Uh, no turbo lag. We had the you know Echo Boost uh, twin turbo, and the thing just takes off off the line. Uh, you can tell that it's set up for zero to sixty times because the thing takes off. I think we got a five and a half zero to sixty, and then wow, it kind of kind of peters out from there, and you finish out the quarter mile. But uh, really fast off the line, it handles very well for a big heavy car. You don't forget that you're in a big heavy car, but it is a pretty good handling big heavy car. Patrick, I know you've had less experience in the Taurus, but you have had a chance to see it and so forth. Any uh, first impressions? Well, so, you know, around here, one of the criticisms we've had about it is that compared to its main competitors, it seems a little tight inside. That, you know, a couple of the guys here have driven it complain that it's not as roomy inside as its competitors. Um, And so, you know, Brian, I don't know if you you felt that. I sat in and it didn't seem too bad to me, but these these guys have taken out more often than I have. No, I definitely noticed that. For their, you know, flagship large vehicle. It's a big car on the outside. It's it's very tight inside. They wanted to give it that more coupe performance-like feel. Which I'm not sure, as you mentioned, is the right thing for your big uh, luxury car. A lot of that room went to the trunk, though. You open that up, you could probably fit three or four guys in there. Well, the car is based. (laughs) (laughs) Take pictures. The the car is based on the previous 500 slash Taurus, which at the time when that came out, they they advertised what it had room in the trunk for 13 golf small golf bags or something, something ridiculous. But I thought rear legroom was surprisingly tight. I think that's what got me. Is that for all this size of car, it wasn't quite uh, as spacious back there. when I think full size, I think, you know, Lincoln Town Car. Lincoln, Lincoln Town Car, I guess. Right. It's not that. But what a looker, what a performer, and beautiful interior. I mean, it's. Yeah, well, I, I think, think it co- continues the evolution for Ford and GM both of really improving their cars to the point where they're much more competitive with both the Japanese and the Europeans. And, you know, I think as people talk about the future of the American auto industry, these are the kinds of cars that they're going to have to keep building consistently to make this work. Patrick, what did you think about the um, um, what do you think about the concept of taking a you know mass production mass produced V6 engine, putting two turbos on it to try and replicate the p- power of a V8, but get more like V6 uh, fuel economy? You think that's a a good approach? I mean, Ford's going to be doing this yeah. a lot. I think it's a great approach. You know, I know that um, we've driven the, the Ford Flex with the, with the Echo Boost. We've driven the Taurus with the Echo Boost, and we've got another—I can't remember what's coming—another one of the Fords that has it. And I think it's a—it's a great idea. And I think, you know, on top of quality cars, it's—it's it's nudging that gas mileage up, you know, while still keeping some power. Because clearly, Americans don't want anemic powered cars. They want cars that can go, and now they want cars that can go and get 35 miles to the gallon. And I think that's—they got to find that sweet spot. 
Yeah, I mean, the pressure's on to improve the fuel economy over the next few years because of the new government mandates. I was right. overall very impressed with the car. I think basically it's got great performance, and even the standard uh, powertrain is uh, will be quite fine for most people, don't you think, Brian? Yeah, 3.5 liter, 260-some uh, horsepower. So, yeah. yeah. So, Can I be a naysayer for one second? Yeah. Uh, love the show. I'm very impressed with the, with the Taurus overall. I, I'm just wondering, um, the show has a starting price of 37000 The one that we have in is 45 thousand i don't know who's going to buy a ford taurus at, at that price well the the show before was their you know the top of the line very premium Back in the 90s. but it's a it's a halo car clearly they i think kind of made a big deal about you know yeah. money is no object this is our flagship and as other brands do with their flagships we're going to throw everything out that we can and what it costs is what it costs and people come in and look at that and then they end up buying the regular car i mean that's right. kind of the the, the drug yeah very good. Thanks, everybody. All right, let's move on now to our lightning round. Michelle's got the bell ready, right? All right. <laughs> and when we hear that, we can either ignore it or we can stop. Anyway, here is our question. Do you think the Cash for Clunkers program was a success? And if so, should it be tried again next year or a few years down the road? Patrick, weigh in on Cash for Clunkers. So I think part of it was a success. It was clearly that they got people to turn in gas guzzlers, and by and large, they've turned them in for much more fuel-efficient cars. So in that sense, I think it was a success. Anybody else? Shamit? Uh, I think that they should do this every two to three years. I mean, it cleans up. Uh, it, it'll help clean out and clean up the whole country in terms of what's out there on the roads. And, I, you know, uh, yeah, I think it works. No controversy good, here. Brian? Good, good success for the dealers, that's for sure. I mean, we're in and out of dealers all the time, and I've never seen – I haven't seen that kind of traffic at the local dealers uh, yeah, in years. But, but here's where the, where I think it's bad for dealers is that, you know, they're low on inventory, and once it ends this time, I think they're going to have a desert stretch there because all the people who had any interest in buying a car have done something about it. I suspect that it's going to be kind of, you know, fallow for a few months after. I think yeah. there'll be some drop-off, but, you know, most of the stuff that was traded in were people's, like, third car. Yeah. And and we'll so there were up. cars they would not, you know, everybody's saying, oh, it's going to rob future sales. Sure, it's going to do somewhat of that. But think about it. These were cars that probably would have not been traded in. So. I, I, we may go back to the same kind of lame market we had before cash for clunkers, but I'm not so sure it's damaged that much mm. of, of what sales it would already been. But I guess we'll find out in the next month or so. Yeah, I think a lot of the environmental groups are saying we didn't go far enough as far as requiring it to be even a higher fuel mileage. Well, you always, you're always going to hear that. And, and the thing is, if you'd done that, you would have left the domestic automakers completely out of it, and you would have them complaining. So uh, I called it the most successful catastrophe the U.S. government's done recently. <laughs> And just because they so mismanaged the program, it's a wonder it worked at all. All right. Very good. Thanks, everybody. Let's move on now to our Motor Week mailbag. If you've got a question you'd like to answer on our podcast, uh, visit www.motorweek.org. You can submit the question. If chosen, you receive a free Motor Week T-shirt. No oohs and ahs this week. I guess you've already got yours. Thank you, Patrick. All right. The question comes from uh, Darian in Delaware. Is that? That rhymes almost. Darian in Delaware. He asked... Okay, our mechanic says to change our oil every 3,000 miles. Owner's manual say anywhere between 5,000, 7,000, or even 10,000. Who should we believe? Patrick, you want to swing at this? 
Sure. If you believe Exxon Mobil and people like them, you should change it every thousand miles. But no, I would say honestly, um, I think every five thousand. My my Kia Sedona owner's manual says every seventy five hundred miles. Even I think that's too long. Um, but I do it every five thousand miles myself. Go ahead, Brian. Uh, always stick with the owner's manual. You know, if it says five, uh, some of the German cars, you know, fifteen, twenty, they're pushing it even farther. But here's the dilemma, and we on our website, Pat Goss, our our technician says, still says three months or three thousand miles. And the theory there is, number one, if you drive in a city environment, it gets very dirty, and the dirt is actually what can cause damage in your engine. So if the oil gets dirty, it circulates dirt. The other aspect is, since nobody checks under the hood anymore, it means at least four times a year you would check under the hood and make sure everything's right. I think even Pat, however, these days, when you get around to some of the synthetics, thinks, well, you know, maybe five if, if you have a chance. He's not here to defend himself. My personal thought is is 5,000 miles is more realistic. But if it depends on the kind of driving you're doing. If it's in a very dirty environment, you're, you know, you might want to do it sooner. And you are worried about the um, the additive package wearing out. And most of them do wear out around five to 6,000 miles. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, John, also yeah. one thing I think is crucial there that you hit on is even if you haven't, if you're going to change your oil every five thousand miles, check your oil, you know, regularly every every month, every other month. Because I know, you know, my wife's van, she doesn't check it that often. One time I checked it, it was incredibly low on oil. And you know, you may not drive that many miles, but especially as they get older, they may go through oil faster. So it's important to keep checking on that. And also, when you've got very low oil uh, and you first start the car up when it's cold, when most of the damage can be done, there's not much oil to circulate, and you can really shorten the life of the engine. Exactly. Well, very good. Let's bring this podcast to a close. I want to thank everybody that was with us today. Patrick Olson, Editor-in-Chief, Cars.com, thank you very, very much for joining us by phone. Thanks, John. Uh, Road Test Producer Brian Robinson, our writer Shamit Choksi, thank you guys for being here. Audio Engineer Jim Bigwood, who can't speak back at us at the moment. Our podcast creator, Bob Mixer, thanks to him. And our producer, the lady on the bill, Michelle Parker. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope you'll join us for our next MotorWeek podcast and on PBS and Speed TV for more MotorWeek. I'm John Davis. We'll talk to you soon. You have been listening to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. MotorWeek is made possible by Cars.com. For additional information on podcasts, videos, and showtimes, visit our website at MotorWeek.org. And watch MotorWeek, television's longest-running automotive magazine series, each week on your local PBS station.